We're involved in a series of sermons on the life of Christ, and our purpose in this series is very simple and very straightforward. We don't want to learn more about Jesus just for more head knowledge. We want it to impact our hearts, and we want it to impact our life. We want to know Jesus more intimately. We want to follow Jesus more passionately. We want to be those who obey Jesus wholeheartedly. We've learned through this study that Jesus is the person who defines the word unique. There was never and never will be anyone like him. He was fully God and at the very same time fully man. In Jesus, God became flesh and lived among us. In the Old Testament, there's the story of Job. Uh, Many of you know that story. Job was a man who went through some extremely difficult times. And at one point in his journey where he was going through some tragedy, he looked up at God and said, you have no idea what it's like to live on this earth. At one point, Job was so frustrated with God that God didn't understand the situation. He shot out this accusation in Job chapter 10, verse 4. Do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see like a mortal sees? Well, in Jesus, God was able to see as a mortal sees. For time, God walked on earth with eyes of flesh. Jesus walked on earth for some 33 years, and most of what we read in the New Testament are only the last three years of His life. And those three years can be uh, divided into three broad categories. The first one is the year of inauguration. We looked at this in the baptism of Jesus, the temptations of Jesus, the first miracle at the wedding in Cana, meeting Nicodemus, where Jesus told him, you must be what? born again. Second year is a year of popularity. Jesus was well known in this little country of Israel that would fit inside New Jersey. Everyone knew about him, not always that he was the Messiah, but a great teacher, a miracle worker, and they the crowds gathered to hear him, the year of popularity. That was the time that Jesus chose the 12 disciples. He gave the Sermon on the Mountain as crowds gathered to hear the miracles in Galilee, calming the storm. The last year is called the year of opposition. And this, of course, was Jesus' last year on earth. The events start to come together that is that last journey into Jerusalem and to the cross. And today, our story occurs at the beginning of that last year. So now we are entering into the year of opposition. Today, we're going to see Jesus walk on water to his disciples who are stuck in a storm in the middle of the sea. This, this lesson, this story is filled with lessons, and we're going we're gonna to look at several uh, as we set the context of the story and consider the story itself. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. The context for our story today begins at the end of Matthew chapter 13. I'm again reading verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there, coming to his hometown, which was Nazareth. He began teaching the people in the synagogues, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these this miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? 
Aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters here with us? Where did this man get all these things? And what's it say? They took what? Offense at him. But Jesus said to them, only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And he did not do many miracles because of their lack of faith. Now, as I said, Jesus was a famous person in the area. Not everyone agreed that he was the Messiah, but they knew he was a great healer, a great miracle worker, a great teacher. In his hometown, he was rejected. They took offense at him. And right at this time, another blow comes in Jesus' life. Remember, he is fully God, but he's also what? Fully man. Some messengers come, actually some disciples from John the Baptist, and they have some bad news. They come to tell Jesus that in response to a very provocative dance, Herod rewarded the dancer, his stepdaughter, with whatever she wanted. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that her name was Salome. And Salome's mother persuaded Herod to kill John the Baptist. She asked for John the Baptist's head, remember, on a silver platter. And it says that uh, the, the platter was delivered to Salome and she carried it over to her mother. Herod carried out the brutal act. So the disciples came to tell Jesus, John the Baptist has been killed. He's dead. And Jesus wanted to get away by himself. I mean, wouldn't you? Your friend, your cousin, this person who had prepared the way for you, a person who was so integral in God's plan, it was gone. Fully God, fully human. And Jesus wanted to get away, but his plan didn't work out. Look at chapter 14. Verse 13, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot to the town. So just get the picture. Jesus is in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. He's at a distance from the shore that people can still see him. And so they are following on the land and they want to see where he lands so they can be there to meet him. And when he got there, there were a lot of of people there. We we're told there were 5,000 men plus the women and children. So let's just do some math. We don't know exactly how many people were there, but let's just say half the men were married. They bring their wives. That's 7,500. And let's say every family had the average of two kids. That's 12,500 people waiting for him on the shore. Look at verse 14. When Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. So Jesus had gone to that area to get away. He needed some time to think. He needed some time to grieve. But as often in Christ's life, there was no time to do what he needed to do because there was such a need of the people. And so he, um, he ministered to these people. He healed them. He taught them. And he was with them all afternoon, and it started to get dark. And Jesus knew they had a long way to go back. And so he said, we need to feed them. And he told his disciples, feed them. Now think about that. On surface, that is laughable. I mean, if I, if I were to say to the people in charge of the food here at the church, hey, before 
we leave today, I want you to have a meal ready for everyone here. They would say, you're crazy. You're kidding. Now, they say that a lot, but that would be a good reason (laughs) for them to say that. We can't feed this number of people. And the disciples said the same thing. What are you talking about, Jesus? There's no way. We could feed. If, if, if there was a store close by where we could get the food, we don't have the money for the food. We only have these five small loaves and two fish. Jesus said, oh, let's go with that. And so they started passing it out in his, at his direction, and they were able to feed the entire crowd. Again, way over 5,000. And at the end of the day, they had 12 baskets full left over, one basket for each disciple. Now that day, something more than a miracle happened. That day, the people raised Jesus to a new level in their thinking. He healed their sick. He taught them. He could provide them food. This was like manna from heaven. He must be the Messiah. He can give us health. He can give us Food And John's gospel says the crowd intended to make Jesus king by force. Jesus knew that, and he knew there was a bigger problem. The disciples were joining in on the enthusiasm of the crowd. The disciples were joining in on the intention of of the crowd. The buzz had an impact and an impression on the disciples. Mark's gospel says they didn't really understand the significance of the feeding of the 5,000. They were too busy passing out the food. Sometimes we get too busy doing ministry to see how big God is, don't we? And the disciples were joining the crowd to make him king by force. Here's the first lesson. Be cautious about the buzz of the crowds. See, we live in a day with the internet where you, you, you can get all the Christian teaching you want. You can follow anyone on Twitter or Facebook, get any podcast you want. There seems to be a new church fad to follow every day. There's a new slant on old doctrine, prosperity gospel, that says you not only need to be healthy and wealthy, you deserve to be healthy and wealthy. And here is a message that will make you happy. That message is filling arenas today. People are flocking to those teachers. Be careful about the buzz of the crowd without doing due diligence examination regarding what's being taught. Solid doctrine has been around a long time, and i got to tell you, about 99.9% of the time, a new teaching is an old heresy. You tell me what a new teaching is, and I'll show you somewhere in history where it was deemed as a heresy. We need, we need to present old truths in fresh ways, right? But we don't need to present new Truths, brand new doctrine, old heresy, don't get caught in the buzz of the crowd. That's why here at the Bible Chapel, we believe in discipleship. That's why we have this thing called living grounded. That's why if you haven't gone through living grounded and made sure that your life is, is founded at the roots, at the bedrock foundation, then you need to do that. We are so thankful that in Wilkinsburg today, 
Uh, they're launching a Living Grounded, a new Living Grounded effort next week. And 18 people in Wilkinsburg have already signed up to go through that. And we encourage you guys in Wilkinsburg to do more. If you're not signed up, do that today. And here, we want to take people through Living Grounded. It is so important for us today to have a filter so that the truth gets through, but error gets caught. And you can only do that if you are willing, one person at a time, to get your life grounded. Otherwise, like the disciples, you get caught up in the emotion of the crowd. I remember when Jesus um, was baptized, right after that, he went, the Spirit led him to the desert, and he had his temptations with Satan in the desert. In, uh, in Luke chapter 4, it says this, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he led he left him until what? Opportune time. Maybe could this have been an opportune time? Could this have been one of those opportune times when Satan struck again? Can you hear Satan telling Jesus, Hey, Jesus, see all the excitement of these people? Hey, Jesus, they are ready to make you king. That's what you came to do. You, every knee is going to bow, every tongue is to, going to confess that you're king. You can do it today. You can start it today. Hey, Jesus, look at those disciples of yours. I have never seen them more excited about anything. Hey, Jesus, you just heard what happened to John the Baptist. They're going to do the same thing to you. I, I, I don't know for sure, but I think that temptation was strong. Look what Jesus did. Look at verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. Verse 23. And after he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Now, two things. Why did he dismiss the disciples? Why did he tell them to get in a boat? Because he needed them to get away from the crowd. They were getting into the buzz of the crowd. Look at this verse. Immediately, right then and there, Jesus said, this is a dangerous situation. I see them going with the crowd instead of me. I'm tempted as well. I need to get away and pray, but I see them. I've got to get them out of here. So he made them. The English doesn't do justice to the Greek word. The Greek word is compel. He compelled them. He forced them to get in the boat and get away. So you can see him saying, hey, Peter, come here. Hey, James, get over here. Hey, John, over here. Guys, right now, in the boat. Get away from these people. And then what Jesus did? He went away to pray. He needed to say, God, this is tempting but I want to go with your plan, not my plan. This place where they were was Bethsaida. Most people say or think that. And the place Jesus told them to go, he told them to sail across to Gennesaret over here. That's about four miles of easy sailing on the tip of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus told his disciples, you, you get in the boat right now and you start sailing and I'm going to join you 
at some point, he didn't tell them how uh, he was going to join them, and they didn't ask. Uh, maybe they just thought he was going to walk uh, the distance, just like the crowd had done, and join them in Gennesaret. Here's what happened when the disciples were on the sea. Look at verse 23. When evening came, middle of verse 23, he was there alone praying. But the boat was already at considerable distance from the land, buffeted, the Greek word tormented, by the waves because the wind was against them. So think about what's going on here. The 12 disciples are in this boat. They put up the sail. It's a little four-mile journey across. They think it's going to happen just like that. And all of a sudden, the winds come up, and the winds are blowing against the boat in the front of the boat, and they are making no progress at all. And so they take down the sail. Mark tells us that they get out the oars. Now it's time to row. And Mark tells us they were straining at the oars. They are stalled and stranded in the middle of the sea. Now, wait a second. Didn't Jesus send his disciples into the sea? Didn't he tell them to take that journey? Would Jesus send his disciples into a storm? Does he do that? couple lessons here. First one is this. Easy doesn't always mean right. And hard doesn't always mean wrong. The disciples were doing just exactly what Jesus told them. And they were straining out the oars in the middle of the sea. Easy doesn't always mean right. And hard doesn't always mean wrong. I think sometimes when we start the Christian journey and, and we are convinced that God has called us to do something, you know, we think it, if God's in it, it's got to be easy, right? Because He's God and He told us to go do it, so it's got to be easy. So we started this foster care and adoption ministry. So maybe some of you said, you know what, I, I believe God wants me to do this. I believe God wants me to do the foster care and maybe adoption later on. And so you started the process and you filled out reams of uh, application online. And then you had someone come and, stay and uh, check out your house. And then you had all this, these questionnaires, and then you had someone come and, and verbally uh, interview you, and then you had to put some money uh, down to do it. And this process has been long, and it's been delayed, and after a while you think, you know what, maybe God wasn't in it, because He would never send me into a storm, He would never delay these things. If God is in it, it's got to be easy, right? Wrong. Uh, we were out in Robinson. The, the group in Robinson is hanging in there because we're meeting at PTI right now, and we got this great piece of property. Great piece of property. Man, it is, it, is, it is a great location. It has a field that we could actually start upward sports this spring, and we have met with the buyers, and we have agreed on a price, and it is just seems like it's stalled right now. It's in a denomination that has some headquarters in Kansas City, then some international headquarters somewhere else in Switzerland, and it's just stalled. But that doesn't mean that's wrong. Easy doesn't always mean right. Hard doesn't always mean wrong. I, um, 
when I do marriage uh, enrichment uh, classes, there's a clip I always like to show because marriage can be challenging. And uh, there's a clip I like to show from a movie called The Weatherman. It's, uh, it has uh, uh, Michael Caine is the dad and Nicolas Cage is the son. And Nicolas uh, Cage wants to get out of the marriage relationship. Check this out. David, sacrifice is... To get anything of value, you have to sacrifice. I know that, Dan, but I think if we continue down this road, it's going to be too detrimental for the kids. It's just too hard. Do you know that the harder thing to do and the right thing to do are usually the same thing? Nothing that has meaning is easy. Easy doesn't enter into grown-up life. Man, I love that. Easy doesn't enter into grown-up life. And so you may be going some hard, go through some hard times right now, man. Don't despair. Don't feel like God has left you. He's on His way. He's on His way. Sometimes we go through storms. One commentator calls them storms of correction, like Jonah. Sometimes we go through storms of perfection, like the disciples. Jesus had some things to teach the disciples. And he was getting ready to come to them and teach them an extremely important lesson. Look at verse 25. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them. The fourth watch of the night would have been between 3 and 6 in the morning. So Jesus has been praying during that time. He knows. He's fully God, right? So he knows they're in a storm. And so he goes out to them walking on the lake. That doesn't happen often, right? The disciples were in the boat. Think about it. They, it's a little eerie out there. The wind is just tormenting them, blowing right at them. They can't make any progress. They are straining at the oars, and all of a sudden, they see a figure. They don't know who it is. They think it's a ghost, the Greek word phantom, walking across the water. Verse 26, when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified, and, and, you, and we would be too. It is a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. So Jesus has them, we're in the middle of the lake, thinking that he's a ghost. He has them pretty much right where he wants them to be. But Jesus immediately said to them, think of him yelling over the wind and yelling over the waves, three things, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. You feel stalled in a storm today? God's saying the same thing to you. Hey, take courage, it is I, literally, I am. He is reminding them, hey, I am God, I am. Take courage, I am, don't be afraid. That's God's message to some of you today. Stalled, stranded, fearful, terrified. And Jesus is saying, hey, here with you. Take courage. I'm God. I got it under control. Don't be afraid. Notice what Peter does in verse 27 or 28. Lord, if it's you, uh, that's It's really a conditional phrase, since it is you, Peter's saying. I know it's you. Since it is you, tell me to come to you on the water. I love, don't you love Peter? 
I don't want to walk on the water. And Jesus said, come on, let's do it. Then Peter got out of the boat, down out of the boat, walked on the water. Check that out. He walked on the water. There are only two people who ever walked on the water, Peter and Jesus, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter's story is such a great one. And we always dog on Peter, right? Because he sunk. Don't dog on Peter. He got out of the boat. Those other 11 disciples, they were comfortable sitting in the boat. And he would have stayed on top of the water had he kept his eyes on Jesus. This is the third lesson and such an obvious one. Keep your eyes on Christ, not on circumstances. Boy, that is so easy to say, but so hard to do, isn't it? Keep your eyes on Christ, not on the circumstances. There are three things that we have to do if we're going to keep our eyes on Christ. Not rocket science. Number one, you have to be in the Word of God on a daily basis. I don't know if you're a morning person or a late night person or you can carve out time in the middle of the day, but you need to be making time to read God's Word. His Word is His love letter to you. He has great things to tell you. He has things He wants to to tell you about Himself. He has things He wants to tell you about you. He wants to correct us. He wants to rebuke us sometimes. We know that. He wants to get us on the right path. He wants to show us how to stay on the right path. But if we don't read his word, we are not reading his love letter to us. And that is critical if we want to keep our eyes on Jesus. You can't keep your eyes on Jesus if you don't keep your eyes on his word. Secondly, we need to pray. Again, this isn't rocket science. These are basic things in the Christian life. But we need to have that ongoing conversation with him. And it's great to pray in the morning, and we should do that, or evening, or whenever you do it. But pray without ceasing. We're to pray all the time. We're to have that conversation with him all the time because he lives within us, and he's right there with us all the time. So we don't have to get in this mindset of, I'm going to pray in the morning. I put my prayer journal down, and now I go do my thing. Jesus comes with us. And we want to make sure we take him with us. And then the third thing is spiritual fellowship. We need Christian fellowship around us. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We don't live in the day when Jesus walked on earth. We can't be Peter who said, Lord, save me, and Jesus reached down his hand. But the body of Christ can. And we need the body of Christ around us so that when we are yell out that prayer, and we will, Lord, save me, the body of Christ can reach down. A good friend can reach down and pull you out of a sinking situation. Keeping our eyes on Christ. Here's lesson number four. It really comes in the form of a question. Why are you content to sit in the boat? Eleven disciples just sat there. Peter got out. Why are you so content to sit in the boat. It's pretty comfortable there, isn't it? And we like to be comfortable. We like to live our Christian life on our terms, and we like to draw our little boundaries and our little box and say, God, 
I, I, I surrender all as long as it's in my box. Take my life and let it be as long as I get it in the little box. You're sovereign right after me. And we like to stay in the boat, don't we? Time to get out of the boat. What are you doing to stretch yourself? Some of you have been in the same old Bible studies for so many years. You need to do something different. You need to stretch yourself. You need to make certain that you are straining at the oars sometimes. You need to make certain that you are not willing to set comfortably in your Christian life. You need to do some things in ministry or for Christ that will stretch you. Well, I don't know if I can do that. That's going to be stretching. Yeah, that's what you need to do. Stretch yourself. Some of you need to get out of so some of you need to get out of your boat in order to do something. Some of you need to get out of the boat in order to get away from something. Some of you need to get out of the boat of sexual sin, of pornography, of adultery, of living together, of homosexuality. It's time to get out of the boat. You can't sit there. Some need to get out of the boat of materialism. Man, God has given us so much. And we spend it on ourselves. Some need to get out of the boat of a strained marriage. It kills me when I talk to a couple and they've been married for 15 years and they come in and they tell me their marriage is really on the rocks. Well, how long? Well, for 10 years we've had trouble. And I, wanna, I do look at the man and say, where have you been for the last decade? You are the leader of your home and you've let this go for 10 years? Come on. And I can't do anything about the last 10 years, but today you start doing something about it. Because you need to get out of the boat of that strained marriage and do something with it. Some of you younger uh, families, you are so involved in your children's activities that it has absorbed your life. You don't even have time to have dinner together anymore. You don't even have time to to have any family activities because one of you is going here to this travel team and the other here to this travel team and then the other to the second travel team and the other to the third travel team. And i got to tell you something. I hate breaking this to you. I honestly do. I, I did a marriage uh, conference with the Justin Bowers. He was at our church for many years in his church in West Virginia this weekend, and I had to break this to the crowd there. And It was a marriage thing, but this is a parenting thing, and they were as stunned as I'm sure you're going to be. And I hate doing this, but I just got to tell you, your children are probably not going to be professional athletes. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> they may be, you may be the one, but it'll be, percentage-wise, it'll be about one of you in here. You may be it, but I'm telling you, I, so many, and dads, let me talk to you, we live, live in your life through your kids. You want them to be the hero you aren't or the hero you were. And you really believe that all that sacrifice and time is going to make them that D1 athlete. And the percentages are against you. And you are sacrificing family time and time to really grow together and marriage time. 
and, you, and, and, and only you can deal with it. So, as a couple, deal with it. Get out of the boat of trying to keep up with the Joneses because they've got their kids in 15 things. And do what you need to do before God. Verse 32. When they, Jesus and Peter, <clears throat> climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Here is Jesus, the God of creation. I am. And then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Truly you are the Son of God. Now check this out. Back-to-back miracles. Feeding of the 5,000. Storm at sea. Where did the disciples learn more about Jesus? Right in the middle of the storm. Right in the middle of the storm. For some reason, they missed They missed the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. So why did Jesus walk to them on the water? Because he needed them to know who he was. He wanted to show them when when he had their attention, when they were stalled, stranded, terrified, and afraid. I want to show you who I am. And they finally got it. You are God. Fifth lesson challenge allows us to see Jesus for who he really is. I don't really like that, honestly. I I wish, I wish the great times in life were the best teachers, but most of us would agree that the challenging times in life are the best teachers, aren't they? And those are the times when, when Jesus comes walking to us in our being stranded on the sea. And we finally, because he has our attention, we finally say, I finally get it. You are truly the Son of God. And that's when we worship him. So there's family here at the church, and uh, they sent me an email a little uh, while back. And... um, they were talking as a couple about how great things were in their life. In fact, they described that particular time of their life as smooth sailing. And then within six months, a a perfect storm hit. The husband lost his job that he thought was secure to that point. The wife developed an excruciating pain in her back that led to surgery. Their son-in-law was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer and eventually lost the battle. So the wife wrote me this uh, great email, how the pain had changed her and her husband and her family. She lists six things. I want to go through these real quick. Listen to what she says. Number one, our struggles have made the Bible come alive for me. Verses scream out at me. I finally understand what all things work together for good to those who love the Lord means. So many blessings and miracles have happened in our life. I have felt God's presence, joy, and peace, joy, and presence like never before. Number two, our situation has made me thankful for all things. I have truly felt the inexpressible and glorious joy, not because of my circumstances, but because I know, all caps, He has a good plan, and I have a the joy of my salvation. I enjoy 
sunrises, sunsets, the moon and the stars like never before. Three, our challenges have enabled me to witness in a way I could have never before. Lives have been changed because of our pain. Number four, our situation has shown me the blessings of having a church family that have surrounded me, surrounded us every step of the way. We can't do this life alone. Number five, the challenges have given me a passion to help and use my spiritual gift of encouragement every opportunity I can. Last one, our struggles have given me a joy I have never truly felt before. I know that our Lord has a good plan for our family. You think God comes to us in our storms? You bet He does. And today, if you're stranded and stalled and scared and fearful, He wants to come to you. And He wants you, maybe for the first time, to bow down and say, You are God. I cannot do this on my own. Or maybe say it again. Yeah, you're reminding me again. You are my God. Kirk's going to come and lead us in a song. Pastoral staff, elders in this service are going to come up front. We would love the opportunity to pray with you and for you, whatever you have going on in your life. Maybe you're in the middle of a storm. We would love to be the hand of Christ reaching down and giving you some encouragement. Maybe uh, you haven't trusted in Christ before, and today would be the day, man, we'd love to, to let you know what it means to have a relationship with the living God.